We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. My witness today is Angus Barge from Mojo Men, and we're going to throw a light onto a subject that's hardly ever discussed beyond as a joke, the relationship between a man and his penis. It is a conversation men never have with each other, and the silence has left most women confused or completely in the dark. Angus founded Mojo Men, which helps men have reliable erections without pills, when he broke the biggest male taboo and discussed his erection problems with his cousin. In all the literature, this is a problem for older men, but Angus and his cousin were both in their 20s. However, when Angus broke the silence, his cousin did something equally brave. He told the truth about his issues too. This is a conversation which lit a fuse, which launched Mojo Men and brought Angus to my podcast today. I wanted to talk to Angus because as a marital therapist, I know the silence is hurting both men and women, but because I believe there's something important to learn from him about facing our fears. And there's no greater fear for a man than his penis letting him down. And the biggest barrier to living the meaningful life is fear. Welcome, Angus. So how old were you when you first had problems, as we would colloquially say, getting it up? Thank you very much for that warm intro. It's lovely to be here. I was 27 and I'd never had any issues before. So it did feel like it was totally out of the blue. I had friends who I know struggled to get it up when they were drunk and that kind of thing, but that had never been an issue for me. So it felt slightly like being hit by a train, actually, when it suddenly happened at the age of 27. (laughs) Hit by a train? What's what's it like being hit by a train? Oh, that is a very good question. I don't know. It was just sheer panic, and you feel a little bit like you're you're in free fall in in a lot of ways. I, I think uh, kind of when you're in your twenties, you're you're not used to bits of your body letting you down, and you kind of still have that slightly immortal feeling. So I sense shock, really, and disbelief. Yeah. Well. The night it first happened, I was drunk. I'd, I'd been out with friends and had gone home with a girl. So that evening, I did put it down to the alcohol and that kind of thing. But it was the next morning when we tried again sober. That was when the train came through the bedroom window. Oops. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And how did you feel about yourself? I would have described myself as a very kind of confident and mentally robust young man at the time. There wasn't a lot that phased me. I, I had a city job, but I, di- I didn't tend to... I, get, I kind of coped with the stress very well. Maybe some people might even have called me a slight kind of control freak, if you like. But this definitely felt like the first thing that was completely out of my control. I didn't even know which way to, to look or what to do about it. It was, yeah, I was completely perplexed. So I imagine you were a bit like most men and you sort of tried to ignore it and hope the problem would go away. Am I guessing correctly? No, absolutely not. That's that, That's not me at all. 
I did, I think, what most most people now do when they have a, a health problem is turn to the magical Google. Dr. Google. Dr. Google, who has an absolute rabbit warren of kind of forums and things that you can go down if you're having sexual issues. I think in, in hindsight, and my kind of what was causing my problems was perhaps quite obvious. I I'd had actually done some kind of physical damage through doing a long distance bike ride. But at the time, that wasn't obvious. And I kind of decided to throw the kitchen sink at it from everything from kind of worrying that because I was vegetarian, I didn't have enough of the building blocks for testosterone to feeling that I wasn't in a relationship. So maybe my intimacy with whoever I was with wasn't enough to get my body feeling comfortable. I gave up porn. I started doing Kegels. If, if there was anything that could be done to solve erection issues, I was, I was doing it in those early months. And did anything help? I think what I had to begin with was crushed blood vessels in my perineum, which tend to take kind of six to 12 weeks to fix on their own, as long as you haven't done anything too serious to them. So in the first kind of two or three months, it was almost impossible kind of to get back to a normal erection like I'd had before. And after that, I'd say I was kind of plagued with performance anxiety for a further kind of six months or so. So during that whole time, it felt quite acute. But yeah, I, I think one thing that really did help was I, I kind of got a, a girlfriend at the time who was very understanding and being able to kind of openly communicate and work through it with someone and realize that this didn't mean I was going to be living a life of sexless bachelorhood. That really helped in itself. And I would say it's probably the, the biggest turning point. Oh, that's interesting. How did you launch into that conversation? Before we'd even had sex. Mm, that's what I mean. A sort of, oh, I'm Angus. My favourite member of the Spice Girls is X. Oh, and by the way. Yeah, exactly. I, I think it can sometimes seem like kind of sexual suicide, the idea of telling somebody that you uh, might have a problem before you even get into bed. But to be honest, I think it's really the only way of doing it. Because if you do leave it until the moment that things aren't going right, then that tends to be when the partner or the person you're with is going to feel like, is something they've done and they kind of internalise it, it becomes much more of an issue. And that makes it more of an issue for you as well, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. You feel like you're slightly on the back foot. And I think a lot of men will kind of feel a little bit defensive and say things like, oh, well, this never happens uh, in the hope that it will happen next time. But actually, if you say that this never happens and it's the first time with this person, I think you're slightly suggesting that, again, it's something they might have done, which spirals a little bit out of control. Because the problem is women are just as lacking in confidence as well. And so they're going to think, oh, I'm not sexy enough. Yeah, well, I mean, sex, no matter kind of what view we have of it, is a vulnerable and intimate thing. You're you're kind of opening yourself up to another person. I think even the most confident of people will feel, will feel vulnerable. And there are a lot of myths about penises and erections. I'm sure you've found plenty of them in your research on the internet. Let's just name a few of them. I think you've suggested one of them already, and the biggest one is that erection issues only happen to old men who have a physical problem that is stopping them. That's the biggest myth going, I think. There are some recent studies that suggest kind of 50% of young men will have struggled to get it up at, at some stage. And the other side of that coin is the assumption that or older men are suffering with physical issues. I think any man who is having erection problems will have a psychogenic element to his issue. 
So yeah, I, I think those are the two kind of most common myths, if you like. How's about the one, men are always ready for sex? Yeah, that <laughs> that is a big one. Always ready and always wanting. I, I have a couple of friends at the moment who are in relationships where they feel their sex drive is lower than their female partners. And yeah, I, th- I think they find that difficult to, to deal with. And that is an unhealthy kind of message and puts a lot of expectation on men, which they kind of internalise. Did you professionally consult somebody rather than just go on the internet? I didn't, actually. I can't, I can't remember what I felt the, the barriers were. I think probably the biggest one was shame. And when I didn't have a grasp on it and didn't know what to do, I, I guess I didn't really know which way to, to turn. Was it to a GP or a urologist on the medical side? Or did I need to speak to kind of a psychosexual therapist? I, I wasn't really, really sure. I guess I was kind of paralysed by the options. And I think that's one of the big problems with this, because it is probably going to be a combination of a physical problem and a psychological problem. Yeah, absolutely. And what for me started off as a physical problem then certainly was a a psychological one. So how did you come to talk to your cousin? That is a very good question. I, I actually quite often put it down to the fact that we were driving in a car at the time. I was actually speaking to a US psychosexual therapist last week, Jed Diamond, who was saying that he finds when he's counselling men that walking beside them is when he'll get the most from them because there's less eye contact and it almost feels like less of an intimate or aggressive encounter in some ways. So yeah, I, w- I was driving in the car with with Sanders. I was in the passenger seat and I was staring out the passenger window. The words just started flowing and I wasn't really sure why. But yeah, I, I think I was just immensely lucky that they didn't fall on kind of deaf ears and it was somebody who'd been going through it as well. Well, we'll talk about that just a bit more in a moment, but just for people who've listened to many of my podcasts, you'll find that Jed Diamond has also been a guest who is an absolutely brilliant guy. We talked about the myths of our creation, what the stories our parents tell us about how we arrived in the world, either verbally or non-verbally can impact on us. So check out that particular interview. How weird that you've just been talking to him. It's a pity you couldn't send my best wishes to him. So I imagine this was quite a long car journey as well for you to get round to this topic. I wouldn't have thought it would have come up in the first half an hour of the journey. Am I right about that? Yeah, exactly. I don't think it was a, a conversation that would have that we would have normally had. It kind of wasn't the relationship Zanders and I had before, even though we've probably spoken about each other's erections every day since. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Maybe the fact he's family as well, there was perhaps an extra layer of safety in, in that. But. And so as the words are beginning to form in your, on your lips and come out of your mouth, what are the feelings? I think one of the things that made it possible at the time was that I felt like I was getting control of it and that I was kind of coming out the other side. I honestly don't think I would have been able to speak to him or anyone prior to that. I think I felt like I had to deal with this on my own. And I think that's a very classic feeling that we're finding a lot of our kind of members and users who are coming and using the platform have as well. They're feeling tremendously isolated and that they are in some way broken, which is ridiculous because as we've already said, kind of half of young men are are in the same boat. So you're anything but isolated. And what was it like when Zander said, me too? Yeah, I mean, he waited a long time before he said me too. There was... (laughs) There was a lot of seconds of silence in between, but that conversation was really incredible for us and I think really showed the power of sharing 
And yeah, we'd had quite different experiences. Xander had been, had kind of suffered on and off with performance anxiety since his teens. Mine was obviously kind of an acute physical problem, which then became performance anxiety as well. But it was amazing that conversation. You realized, despite the causation being quite different, actually the feelings you have were exactly the same. So it was a tremendously powerful conversation for both of us. And right away, we knew we were on kind of a new journey, if you like. And what happened next after that conversation? I'm actually from a psychosexual background. My mother is a psychosexual therapist. <laughs> so I think it, it was Zandra had kind of said, we have to do something about this. And I guess it kind of felt like it was a little bit of a joke for the first week or so, but I was at home the following week with my mum and I told her I had the same conversation with her that I'd had with Zandra's and said that we were thinking of, of doing something about it. I, th- I think she felt pretty emotional, the fact that I felt comfortable enough to, to speak to her about something like this. But yeah, I, I think kind of after that, what really propelled us into action was this was exactly the time when Viagra had become non-prescription and you were seeing the influx of erection medications being sold online and marketed to young men. I don't know if you were in London at the time, but the tubes and the buses were awash with kind of handsome models telling you that you should be the best partner you can be because there's an easy pill that you can take and it's almost your, your duty to do so. Don't suffer in silence. And that just didn't sit well with us at all. The idea that young men should be resigning themselves to a lifetime of erection medication to support their sex lives is kind of what I I think that was the real catalyst in creating Mojo Man. And had either or both of you experimented with medication? Yeah, we both had. We'd both used Viagra at different points. I think, again, we'd felt the same way about it, which was it felt a little bit hollow. And I kind of still knew that the underlying cause was there and I, I wasn't dealing with it. There was something I didn't tell. I don't think either of us told the partners we were with that we were taking Viagra at the time. So I think that felt a little bit dishonest. Yeah, I think from our experience, our research so far, a lot of men who are taking erection medication realize that there is a risk of building up a dependency on it. Nobody wants to kind of rely on this crutch. And yeah, there there certainly is a, a risk of there being a level of dependency that builds up and even without knowing that, I think a lot of men kind of instinctively feel that they don't want to be using medication for a prolonged period of time if they don't need to be. And so what have you learned from talking to your cousin on a daily basis about each other's erections? What have you learned <laughs> about the relationship between men and their penises? I've learned that there isn't one a lot of the time. We assume that it's a piece of our body that should work the whole time whenever we need it and we don't have to look after it and we we don't think of it as, as something that could let us down or, or needs to be worked on the same way we do other parts of our body like you might if you went to, to the gym or even even your mind if you if you were kind of taking part in headspace or calm, these kind of meditation apps, that's you essentially working on your, your mental well being. I don't think men have a relationship like that with their penis and they haven't been working on their sexual and relationship well-being the way they perhaps should. I think it's a, and I agree 100% with you about that, but I think we have to sort of look at the heart as well as the penis at this particular point, because what often happens is men are sort of trained not to have a relationship with their hearts, you know, that we're told man up and get on with it. So we ignore everything that's happening, you know, in our emotional life. And yet, 
at the same time, we're told that actually it's really important to have a vibrant sexual life and that actually sex is incredibly important. So while we're busy ignoring all our emotions, the one part of our body and the one place that we do pay attention to is our penis. And the problem can be that because all the focus is down there, we're actually working through often, this is going to sound really weird, quite a lot of emotional issues with sex and with our penis. And so what might seem like a sexual problem actually might be an emotional problem because we're not paying attention to our fears and our anxieties about the pressures of life. And so it's going to pop up in the bedroom because actually that's the only place that we listen to. The time that men will come and ask for help is not when their whole lives have collapsed and makes no sense at all to them, you know, like an existential crisis, but hey-ho, if their penis doesn't work, they're straight to the doctors. What do you think about that? That we almost perhaps put too much emphasis on our penis. Yeah, I, I I totally agree. I think getting an erection is a magical feat of engineering between your mind, body, and your penis, kind of your nerve system and your emotions and all these different bodily functions all have to work in kind of perfect unison. And yeah, I think in urological fields, quite often they'll talk about erectile dysfunction as being a red flag for something else that is going on. And by that, they're usually talking about diabetes or nerve problems or obesity and things. But actually, as you've just said, I think it's actually a red flag for things that are going on in your in your emotional life as well. Because equally, if, if you're not able to get it up, it can point to different stresses or anxieties or relationship issues or body image issues. It, it can be this endless kind of emotional baggage that is raising its or not raising its flag for. So explain how you put together, actually perhaps before you explain how you put together Mojo Men, explain to us what it is, how it works and what it offers. So Mojo Men is an online platform and we have a community of experts that have helped us put together remote classes that will help men diagnose and rehabilitate their erection issues remotely. So our members come and they will log on to the platform for a low-cost monthly subscription and they have access to these pre-recorded courses and exercises that will help them get to the root of their problem. I think that really came from the feeling of being lost that Sanders and I had and kind of there being so many different options that it was quite hard to find a place that gave you all the professional expertise in one place. So we quite luckily work with some of Europe's best psychosexual therapists, urologists, medical doctors, nutritionists, physios, and other well-being professionals as well. So we're really trying to be a hub resource for any kind of sexual problem that a man might be facing. And when you say exercises, what do you mean? Exercise and techniques that have been used in private practices and clinics for decades, whether that's on the kind of physical side where you're working on your pelvic health and blood flow to your genitals, or it's exercises, which I'm sure as a psychosexual therapist, you'll be very familiar with. They're very practical and easy exercises. So it might be kind of masturbatory techniques or breathing exercises or reframing your thoughts. A lot of the exercises are kind of based in CBT therapy, that kind of thing. So none of these are revolutionary exercises or particularly hard to do. But I think having it delivered by an expert and in an educational resource is really proving beneficial to men. And I think education is incredibly important because there is a huge amount of misinformation out there. 
Where does the majority of misinformation come from, do you think? There's various kind of misinformation that you get when you go to the online forums and things, which are peer groups, and it's kind of men who are there to support and share their experience. They're a very good resource for kind of normalizing these issues and helping men get support and feel comforted and like they're not isolated. But unfortunately, they're not manned by professional people. So quite often there is some (laughs) quite funny misinformation on there. A lot of times you're kind of, I remember reading a blog post that was, or a post in one of these forums that was telling me that thrashing with nettles would increase blood supply. I didn't give it a go. So I, I, and I actually can't speak as to whether it it would work or not. I'm I'm sure there is some pseudoscience behind it. But I I think most of the misinformation comes from just an expectation we put on ourselves. And I know it's a a big buzzword at the moment, but it's this kind of toxic masculinity as to what men are meant to be and how we're meant to feel and meant to act. I think that's the biggest source of misinformation or at least misguided information. Unfortunately, I think a lot of men get their advice about sex from pornography. What sort of misinformation do you think men get from pornography? Yeah, absolutely. I I think you're really right. I think from a very young age, pornography is actually proving to be the biggest source of education for men. I I think it can be damaging as soon as you use it as an educational tool and not an entertainment tool. It can be damaging because it's setting expectations not only for yourself, but for your partner as well. And I would be very surprised if most porn stars are not using artificial enhancements, most probably injections, and therefore their erections are rock hard because they've effectively chemically induced and they will last for a long time, no matter what. And these are young men as well. So it creates an entirely false impression of erections. Yeah, I I mean, I think we have to look at porn and see it for what it is, and that is adult entertainment. So when we see porn stars, we should think these are like movie stars. Their job is to keep themselves in exceptionally good shape. They've been chosen because they have very big penises. penises. or. Let's 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 be honest. They're chosen on their penis size, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. And also the the women as well. They've been crafted into being a very certain look or feel for whatever kind of viewership is going to be following that. So I think you, we have to look at porn stars and, and realize that's their job, and that is not what sex looks like. Some of these positions are are not something that should be tried at home, quite quite frankly. And uh, I certainly know my body can't get into some of the shapes and things that I've seen online. Do you recommend changing the relationship with pornography? Because sometimes the erection problems can be due to almost a porn addiction, that people are masturbating so much that poor penis can't keep up, so to speak. Uh, Yeah, undoubtedly, porn can cause erection issues. I think it's each to their own. We're not a platform who is demonising porn. I think it's all too easy to point the finger and say, oh, well, this explosion in erection issues over the last 20 years has been to do with pornography because it correlates time-wise. Kind of, If you look at the early 2000s, there was roughly about 5% of men under the age of 40 had erection issues. By 2011, that was well above 30%. And that was with the rise of the tube sites and kind of online porn. So a lot of people do point the finger at porn and say that it is almost the entire issue. But I think it's easy to forget that 
our whole lives changed over that period from 2000 to 2010, kind of the way we work, date, socialize, everything kind of globalized over, over that period. I think you have to judge your porn use on your, your own. There, there will be men who watch hours of porn a day and it's not affecting their erection or having a negative impact on their life. But equally, there'll be men who watch 10 minutes once a week and that will be setting unrealistic expectations in their mind and it will be being harmful. The crossover is, is it affecting your normal life? Is it stopping you from socialising? Is it stopping you from doing exercise and things? Well, there's two things I would like Well, actually, there's three things I'd like men to take away from this discussion. First and foremost is to actually have a relationship with your penis. It's a part of your body and, you know, you should have a relationship with it. But the first one would be erections come and go, that in pornography and in stories, people are rock hard the whole time and they come and go. You're focusing on your partner and the erection is going to either become less firm or it's going to go altogether. That doesn't mean the sex has to stop. Actually, you just cuddle, you touch, you enjoy the erotic togetherness and the erection will come back. So I would say erections come and go. What would you say to that? I would totally agree with you. And actually where a lot of men will fall into the trap is they'll have one bad experience with erections, which leaves them doubting their body. And they'll then find that the next time they go to be intimate with someone and have sex, they'll be watching their penis, waiting for it to kind of let them down. And what a lot of men don't realize is throughout having sex, your penis will naturally harden and soften a little bit the whole time through till till climax. It will literally go unnoticed. Most men won't even know it's happened until they've had this one episode that has left them doubting and you start to watch your penis and if you feel that natural softening it's only a little softening but if you feel that natural softening you suddenly panic because you feel like oh my god this is happening again and before you know it you've put your body into a fight or flight response and you do lose your erection whereas otherwise it wouldn't wouldn't have affected you if you weren't kind of waiting for this so that's the first message erections come and go and my second one is you've got fingers and tongues too. Yeah. <laughs> and I tell you, fingers are very reliable things. Yeah. Tongues are pretty reliable too. What do you think of that idea? I've actually just read a book by Karen Gurney called Mind the Gap, which I think is absolutely fantastic. It kind of talks about the orgasm gap in between heterosexual and same-sex couples. And she talks about why sex shouldn't be defined as this kind of foreplay, penetrative sex, climax done. And yeah, actually calling something foreplay is demoting it to a level below penetrative sex, which is wrong. Actually, in a lot of cases, I don't think you need to have an erection at all to have some of the best sex of your life. And actually, here's another myth that men don't know, that you can actually ejaculate without an erect penis. Oh, really? I'm not sure I even knew that. That's news to me. Well, There you are. There's a a new piece of information for you. What's the name of the author of Mind the Gap? Karen Gurney. She's a London-based therapist. Excellent. We'll have that on the information sheet and obviously all the details about Mojo Men as well. So what have you learnt about yourself on the Mojo Men journey? What have I learnt about myself? I've learned that I didn't like being vulnerable before this journey. The conversation I had with Sanders would have seemed very daunting. I've learned that I actually enjoy being 
vulnerable now and I'm kind of gaining real strength from doing so. And that's kind of in my romantic and social relationships. I'm finding a much greater connection with people through taking this gloss off and telling the truth about kind of how I'm feeling and what I'm, what I'm going through. And what have you learned about fear? What have I learned about fear? I guess it's what you make of it. This topic is completely and utterly full of fear. Yeah. The biggest fear element in this topic is making that kind of first step. 75% of men who are suffering in the bedroom won't make the first step to see a professional or get help. I guess in a lot of ways I was guilty of that myself. But making that first step is perhaps the hardest, most fearful, but also the most liberating. On the platform at the moment, we are running member sessions every week that men can kind of drop in and chat to each other and ask us questions and things. Even yesterday, I had a man messaging me in the morning saying, I'm very worried about this session tonight. I'm feeling kind of scared and he was certainly fearful. And when he came on, he chatted to myself and other other men in, in this group and felt totally liberated. He didn't have to do anything more than than say what was going on for him which was amazing to watch. It is the most wonderful thing, men talking to other men honestly about themselves. So it's been fabulous, the fact that you are so open (laughs) about this topic. I mean, it is just incredible. So thank you for that. We're going to, in a second, look at some of the issues about being a man. And I've got a letter that's been written in. And if you'd like to have the chance to write in to us, you can join our members group. And there's some details about how to do that. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. Hello, I'm Andrew Marshall. This is The Meaningful Life, and my witness today is Angus Barge from the Mojo Men. And if you join our supporters circle, you can write a letter like this one. I'm a 36-year-old man who's never been lucky with women, and it's getting harder to meet someone as most of my friends have either married or settled down into serious relationships. I've tried internet dating, but I'd rather get to know someone slowly. Sometimes I wonder if I go too slowly because there will be a work colleague or someone I met on a course, which is my favourite way of meeting people, and before I know it, I'm in the friends rather than the lover territory. When I've asked some of these friends why I never seem to click with women, they tell me that I'm too nice. I really can't understand why women seem to like bastards so much. Over the years, I've fallen into two traps. When I was at university, it used to be hopeless crushes on beautiful girls who would encourage me enough to keep me interested, but when I look back, never took me seriously. Alternatively, I've dated a few women who were really keen on me, but after a few nights out together, I've found that I have nothing in common. They will drift on for a couple of months, but ultimately end because I haven't returned their calls and they get the hint, or there is a nasty and embarrassing showdown. My longest relationship was with a woman at my last place of work, but she was married. The sex was incredible, but it became clear that it wasn't going anywhere and we broke it off, although we still do have sex from time to time. I hate myself for doing this, but I can't stop myself. I know I won't find love this way, and I really want to settle down and have a family. So what do you think, Angus? Any thoughts? 
it feels like a lot of common stories there. I've, I've heard these feelings from even some of my close friends as, as well. It feels like there's something about the unobtainable here. He, he doesn't actually sound like he's that unlucky in love because he says there are women who are trying to date him. And I think, did, did he say, kind of almost climbing over themselves to, <laughs> to go and date I him? I think he was more modest than yeah. that, but maybe we could say that. Yeah, yeah it, it doesn't sound like he's too unlucky. He's maybe just not getting the women he would like to or are available at the moment. Do you think, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try and find a nice way of putting this, men use women in the same way they use cars. You know, they want to have the shiniest and the best car, and they're sort of treating women a bit like cars, that she's got to have a certain number of features to actually take for a test drive. Well, I did wonder that when he said that he had women in his past who had become friends, his way of describing them was that they were beautiful. He didn't say that he had females in his past that he had a great connection with, but they weren't interested. It was that they were beautiful. So I, I did I did wonder what his kind of threshold for having things in common with these women were. And why do you think men spend half their lives rating women about how sexually attractive they are rather than who they are? That's a good question. I don't know if that's specific to just men as well. I'm, I'm sure women spend a lot of their time rating men. I, I presume it's the kind of the culture we live in now where we're bombarded all day long with advertising that is telling us what the perfect body should be or, or what the perfect life should look like even. That we're, we're constantly assessing our what we have and those around us. I mean, I think there's something about insecurity and that we sort of worry about whether we're good enough. We wonder if other people are going to rate us and if we are okay. And one of the ways of sort of trying to quieten these devils is getting outside tokens that say we're okay which is, you know, getting the right job, getting the right looking girlfriend. And we think that if we can actually make ourselves have enough points in the world, we're going to deal with our insecurity. So we spend all the time getting points rather than thinking why we want these points so much. And you're not going to have a good connection with somebody if you're trying to rack up points rather than make connections. So I think that's part of it. The other thing I would say to you is think about your relationships when you were a child. Was there anything that actually said to you that relationships were dangerous? Because if we've learned as a child that people can get angry with us, that people can leave us, or they will make us feel in some way that we're not good enough, you can imagine you're going to be stepping back a little bit when it comes to relationships. And we have this fantasy that we're going to meet somebody where the feeling is so powerful that we're going to leap over all of these fears. And I mean, these fears could be our erection problems, that if we actually only find a woman who is just the most attractive woman, or it's a woman that we feel so entirely connected with, we will skip over those problems. And it's much better in the long term not to skip over the problems, to actually address those underlying things rather than the shortcuts that were being offered in the case of Angus, erectile dysfunction medication, and in this case, actually understanding why relationships might be a little bit dangerous and why on one hand you might desperately want a relationship and a family and on the other hand be terribly concerned about one. 
So sometimes actually looking deeper and actually finding out what's really going on deep down rather than just on the surface can be really helpful. So, Angus, I've invited you onto this program to be a witness for what makes life meaningful. What makes your life meaningful? My life at the moment, I think, is incredibly, I, I think I've found a lot more meaning in it the last two years, kind of working on something that I really love with Xander, who is my cousin and a real best friend to me. I, th- I think it, Could we say that you love him too? I do. I do love him greatly and wouldn't be able to do it without him. I, I think for me, it's all about social connections and being part of a community. And I, th- I think my job now, I, I feel like we're doing something meaningful and we're making a difference and we feel needed, which I think is, is really important. If, if you can find some, some way that you can help and feel needed, I think that's the real route to, to happiness. And how important are male friendships in making your life meaningful? Incredibly so. And I think I mentioned it slightly earlier in the podcast, kind of if you can be vulnerable with someone, you find the connection goes much deeper. And on the platform as well, we interview a lot of men who talk about their own real life experiences. And I can't believe how close and connected we feel as a group having done those filming with men who came in at the beginning of the session as a complete stranger. I think there's something incredibly liberating about hearing men speak in a way that you haven't before, which is to be really open and real and and vulnerable about their situations and their lives. And I think men actually, and I'm just sort of thinking aloud, we sort of underestimate the importance of our relationship with other men. You know, when we say, oh, relationships, you know, is part of what makes our life meaningful. We're often talking about relationships with our partners and actually not thinking of those broader things. What what do you think about that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think men tend not to rely on their friends for emotional support in the same way that women quite often do. And I, I think, yeah, being able to have a kind of close male friends that you can share with can be completely life-changing. And tell them that you have erection problems, because all of this wonderful thing started by you and Xander opening up to each other. Yeah, t- tell them you've got problems in the bedroom, tell them you've got problems at work. You don't have to pretend that your relationship is going rosy if something's going wrong. Tell them that you're struggling with your romantic partner as well. You, you don't have to sell yourself as this kind of impenetrable success story. It's just it's not the case. I once had a, a male client who was worried about going to, I think it was his like 30th school reunion anniversary. He said he didn't want to sort of just pretend everything was okay. So I said, are you going to tell him that you're in therapy? You know, you're going to tell your friends you're in therapy. And he said, oh, that might be an interesting idea. And guess what? All of them were in therapy <laughs> beyond one. And they all felt that he should have been in therapy. Yeah. But Actually, it took my client to be the one to actually say, oh, guess what? I'm in therapy. And they went, me too, me too, me too, me too. But actually, it just took that one person to make the first move and to actually open up and speak. So I hope our conversation has helped other people open up and speak to each other, particularly men to men. And men talk to your women about erection issues too. 
So this is the point where the conversation ends for most people. But if you join our supporters circle, then you get all sorts of other additional benefits. The one we're going to be starting up soon is a heart circle where you get a chance to talk to other people about what's in your heart. There's details about that in our Patreon site, and you can get to that through my website, which is www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcasts. Now, the other important thing you get is the full interview because we finish here, but for people who are part of our supporters circle, they get to find out the sort of post-match analysis. We're going to put it in, in men terms about, you know, what I learned from this experience and what Angus learned from this experience. And you get to find out the three things that Angus knows to be true in this world. So do find out details and here they are. So for now, thank you, Angus. Thank you very much. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.